Please turn with me in your Bibles to the ninth chapter of the Gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 9. Three weeks ago, we left off with Jesus explaining to the crowd and to his disciples what it means to be his followers. This came on the heels of Peter's great confession that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, which Jesus then followed up on by plainly teaching the 12 disciples that he must suffer and be killed and rise again. None of the disciples could really swallow this, and Peter strongly reacted to it. He took Jesus aside and actually began to rebuke him. Jesus then cut him off and rebuked him while he was looking at the rest of the disciples as well, telling him he was not setting his mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The last part of chapter 8 clearly marks a turn in Mark's narrative from focusing on who Jesus is, the first half of the book, to Jesus' purpose that we're now in in the last half of the book. In other words, why the cross was necessary and what it accomplished. And as we proceed now in the second half of this gospel, we continue to see the disciples' consternation in trying to come to grips with what Jesus is now teaching them. How could what first seemed to be a triumphant march with the Messiah now be turning into a tragedy where the words suffering and death keep being mentioned? How could following Jesus now mean that they too must deny themselves and take up their cross daily? We can all identify with the disciples' frustration here. They've seen Jesus command storms to cease and seas to calm. They've seen him walking to them on the water. They have witnessed miraculous healings of all kinds, of physical diseases and infirmities. They've been astonished as Jesus demonstrated his authority over demons They passed out food to thousands of people that Jesus created right in front of them. They've heard him teach and explain the scriptures as the one who is the author of the scriptures. And yet now they find out that his purpose is to suffer and die on a cross. Why? How does that make sense? How can a cross be linked to the glory and the power that they've already seen demonstrated in Jesus' life? If you're able, would you please stand? I'm going to be reading the first eight verses of Mark chapter 9. Mark 9, 1 through 8. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John 
and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now we start off this chapter with Jesus saying something that is directly connected to what he had said right before that. This statement in verse 1 is the last part of his call to discipleship for all who follow him. And Jesus lets his disciples know that a few of them would see what he would be like when he came again, which is what's going on here. He said in verse 29 of chapter 8 that he would come again in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And little did Peter, James, and John know that their trip by themselves with Jesus up to the top of this mountain would be an anticipation of the future second coming of Jesus Christ. Way back in the book of Exodus, God came down on Mount Sinai in a cloud and spoke to terrified people, terrified people, as they were witnessing and hearing all this. And later, Moses went to the top of the mountain and he said to God, please show me your glory, meaning God's infinite greatness And what we could say is his unimaginable beauty. Please show me your glory. And God answered Moses. He said, you cannot see my face. For no man shall see my face and live. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. God is telling Moses that there is an infinite gap between deity and humanity. You can't take my reality, Moses. You can't endure the presence of my holiness, my glory. It would destroy you. So Moses was not able to see God's glory directly. But even then, Moses' face still shone with the reflected glory of God, which caused quite a stir stir in the Israelite camp. Now here in the New Testament, we were taken to another mountain where there is glory again. If you're interested, we don't know where this mountain is. Nobody really knows. They don't know whether it's north of 
Caesarea Philippi or south or somewhere in between. The point is, it's a mountain, it's high. And this time, by the way, if we did know, you can imagine what people would do to it. Okay. This time in verse 2, there is a change of condition and form. A change of condition and form, which is what the word transfigured means. In other words, Jesus' earthly form is transfigured into the supernatural here. And it's described in our text in verse 3 by the radiance of his garments. And in Matthew 17, 2, by Jesus' face shining like the sun. And what else is similar to Mount Sinai? Well, Moses is there. There's a cloud and there's a voice that comes out of the cloud. Don't you love how that's described? God's voice coming out of this terrifying cloud. So is this Mount Sinai all over again? No, it's not. In Exodus, Moses had reflected the glory of God, like the moon reflecting the sun's light. But here, Jesus produces the unsurpassable glory of God. It emanates from him. Jesus is not pointing to the glory of God as all the other prophets did. Jesus is the glory of God in human form. In Hebrews 1.3, we read exactly that. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Well, what else happened here? Peter, James, and John did not die in the presence of God. This is major, especially to them. They did not die. These men knew that Jesus, being transfigured into a brilliant, brilliantly radiant and glorious being, and talking with Elijah and Moses, verse 4, meant that they were now in God's very presence. And that meant, as all Israelites knew, that they would not live through this experience. They knew what the Old Testament scriptures taught about sinful mankind's inability to be in the presence of God's holiness and his glory. So Peter and James and John are absolutely terrified here, which we read in the text. So much so that Peter stumbles through an idea that looks like he barely even knows what he's saying to the transfigured Jesus. In verse 5, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. He hopes. Let us make three tents. What's the other word for tent? This is the word tabernacle. 
Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Why did Peter say this? Now remember that the Hebrew people built a tabernacle after God's glory came down on Mount Sinai. Per his instructions. And this tabernacle was meant to be a picture and a means of mediating the gap between God and his people, human beings. Peter is actually then saying something like, We need a tabernacle. Or more than one. We need to set up rituals to protect us from the presence of God. That's what he's saying. And in verse 6, we read that all three men were terrified, but of course, Peter was the voice that communicated what is really an Old Testament solution to what looked like the end for them. And then in verse 7 and 8, we read, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. This is really hard to grasp. They are in the very presence of God. Yet Peter, James, and John do not die. How could that be? Who is left with these three men when they look around? No one there with them but Jesus. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. Jesus is the bridge over the gap between God and humanity. Jesus is able to give what Elijah couldn't give. And remember, Elijah is the one that got carried off to heaven in chariots of fire. Know anybody else like that? Jesus is able to give what Elijah couldn't give. Jesus is able to give what Moses could not give, what no one else could ever deliver. In other words, It's only through Jesus that the gap between God and humanity can be bridged. Another way to say that is Jesus is the tabernacle. Because he is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The ultimate priest to point the way for all priests. Did they get this? Would you have gotten it? Hey, they didn't get this. It didn't sink in. It'll take a while. And this is why God says what? Listen to my son. 
my beloved son. They must listen to Jesus. So then the cloud came down. God's voice is heard. They don't die. Another way to say this is that they have been surrounded and embraced by the brilliance of God as he speaks to them of his love for the Son. Just like what happened at Jesus' baptism. And then suddenly the cloud is gone, and they're left standing there in awe and wonder. Peter, James, and John had an experience they did not expect. And that experience, expectation, changed several times on this little journey. They experienced worship, a preview of what all our hearts are longing for, whether we know it or not. True worship of our Creator and Lord and Savior fills the longing and void in our hearts. The only way that void can be filled. And we get a taste here through Christ of what it means to be known and loved and saved from ourselves. Worship is not just believing. Before they went up the mountain, Peter, James, and John believed in Christ. Peter had made the confession. These guys went along with it. But now, what's different? They have sensed and experienced the presence of God in His glory. Which is a foretaste of being face to face with God and knowing His loving embrace when He comes again. Forever and ever. And they get a foretaste of it. Now they've got to go down the mountain. Let me just read this, verses 9 through 13. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. What? So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Still don't get it. And they ask him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Follow all that? So as Peter, James, and John come down from the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. What? what? You mean not any of their, they were married? Nope. Not even their friends? Nope. What about the other nine guys? No. 
Did they obey? It says they did. Why did he tell them to tell no one what they had seen until Jesus had been resurrected? I think there's two main related reasons, and we've seen them before. But the first is really, really important. The meaning of this whole event would only become apparent after the resurrection. Because as we've learned, the transfiguration is a glimpse or a preview of what? Of the resurrection and then also of Jesus' what? Second coming. He got a preview. Peter, James, and John got a preview. And Jesus knows they won't really start understanding this until they see him resurrected. So the second main reason is linked to this. It's like other times when Jesus, is, Jesus instructed his men to keep quiet about who he really was. He doesn't want to stir up a misunderstanding about his messianic identity and doesn't want to draw crowds who are hoping to see what Peter, James, and John saw. Can you imagine that? If the word got out and people believed what these guys were saying, can you turn on your brilliance for us? We want to see the glow. I mean, it would get absolutely ridiculous. Now take note. Of this, he talked about a resurrection. What do you have to have happen to you before you're resurrected? You have to die. So Jesus gets that in there with this. Again, something they don't want to really hear. He pointed to his death. And once again, Peter and the others have trouble swallowing what Jesus is telling them about having to suffer and die. So, do they just keep going the way they have and blurt something out and directly ask him the question? No, they get a little trickier here. All the way down the mountain, they're thinking about all this, okay? Somewhere along the way, they did something. First, we're told that they did keep the matter to themselves while questioning among themselves what this rising from the dead might mean. Same thing they've been trying to figure out. But look what they then asked Jesus in verse 11. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? In the book of Malachi, in the Old Testament, Malachi prophesied that Elijah would return before the great day of the Lord in Malachi 4.5. When God will appear and make everything right. So what are Peter, James, and John really saying by asking this question? Come on, you know. Hey, we just saw Elijah on the mountain. So the great day of the Lord must be here, right? So why are you talking about suffering and dying? Old Testament prophet said Elijah comes first. We saw him. He's here. And how does Jesus answer this question in the first part of verse 12? Jesus tells them that Elijah the prophet 
was pointing to John the Baptist, and then John the Baptist has suffered and died, so Elijah has come and gone. You're going, Bobby, that's not in there. It doesn't mention. It's in Matthew's account. Matthew 17, 13. Then the disciples understood that Jesus was speaking to them of John the Baptist. That didn't mean it cleared anything up for them. They were still trying everything to figure out, I don't want to take up my own cross. I don't want to see Jesus, who I know is the Messiah, die. Why does he have to do that? They don't get it. And in verse 13 we read, But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Then Jesus goes on to get to the main point that the disciples are still agonizing over. Look at the last part of verse 12. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. There it is again. And Jesus repeats here what he's told them already, that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Elijah pointed to John the Baptist. John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord. You see, they still didn't get the first coming thing and the second coming thing and what had to happen in the first coming thing. We've got to consider some things as we went up on that mountain and with these guys and read this account and then come down. What happened at Jesus' baptism before Jesus began his public ministry of teaching and healing? And also, right before he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan himself, what happened? The Spirit descended with the dove, and God the Father pronounced his blessing. This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Right? Before he started his public ministry, right before, the Spirit led him into the wilderness for 40 days without anything to eat, and at the end... Satan appears in person to tempt him. Well, do you think that the Holy Spirit attending him and the Father's blessing, this is my beloved Son with who I am well pleased, right before he sets out on his public ministry, did that fortify and strengthen him for what was ahead? Don't say, well, yeah, he was God, too. He didn't need it. He's 100% human. You ever been sent out on something horribly hard and no one said one word to you? How did that feel? We've got to consider this. And now we've just looked at how Jesus was actually enveloped by the Father's presence and glory on a mountain, including a conversation with Moses and Elijah. And don't ask, what was that about? I have no earthly idea. I mean, we've got some guesses, but don't go there too long. And we see the Father's blessing again resounding. Can, can you sort of hear it? In and through the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus is moving now towards what? The final days of his life, the biggest test of ever, the work of actually dying 
on the cross and payment for the sin. Taking on God the Father's wrath for our sin of those who will believe in him. His execution on the cross. Do you think this fortified and strengthened Jesus? This episode today? Who else was strengthened and encouraged and better prepared for the test they didn't even know was really coming when the one they love and are following would be taken for them? Who? Peter, James, and John. Have you ever had that kind of experience when the compassion and love of another person helped you deal with your suffering? When someone's unconditional approval and encouragement transformed your fear into resolve. When an encounter, can we say this like this? Yes, we can. With beauty, excellence, seem to neutralize your anxiety and give you hope. Remember those times right now. There has to be at least one big one. But notice that Jesus took only his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, with him up that mountain. These were the people he was closest to and spent the most time with. And one of the things that Jesus was getting across to these men is that encouragement and strength from one another and for one another is important and will be important and even vital. And later in the garden, what happens? On the night he was betrayed, these same men fell asleep and checked out of the we can help encourage the Lord in what seems to be a really serious situation department. It's so serious, he asked us to come with him and be alert with him. And we failed miserably. And then Peter denies them. That's hard to fathom. We need to think about these things. But something else has to be and is even more important and vital. Something else will provide access to God himself. Who, of course, is the source of of every good gift and all the grace we ever need in any situation, no matter how dire or dark it is. Peter, James, and John learned something on that mountain that true worship brings us into the very presence of God. You have to see clearly in your mind what God has done and is doing through Jesus. You have to get that part down. And you can't do that if you don't learn what Scripture says about him, his life, and why we need a Savior. And we need to hear it over and over and over again because it comes from every direction in the Scripture because that's what the Scripture is about. We have to see clearly in our heads what God has done and is doing through Jesus. And you have to experience foretastes of that embrace that God is going to give you someday. Our problem is 
We don't want foretaste. We want it all right now. We don't want to wait a second. See the difference? You have to actually sense what you know of God's love. Let me give you some examples I've found. Start off with the most ridiculous one and we'll go from there. It's one thing to be told that somebody is remarkably attractive. You believe it, but when you actually see him or her up close, you say, oh, wow. Well, most of us would probably say, that's not me. Wow. Well, what happened? Did you get any new information about that person? No. You are experiencing what you already knew to be true. Get it? What if somebody says, this is getting a little more plausible. This restaurant is unbelievable. It's the best. And you believe what you've been told. And you go to there to eat. And you're still just bowled over how good it is. In fact, you keep putting down your knife and fork because you don't want to get through. You savor every bite. Well, did you get any new information about this place? No. You experienced what you already knew to be true. This happens to us in lots of different ways. When I was in junior high school, my family went on this western vagabond trip camping. First stop was Grand Canyon. Well, you know how I kind of am. I opened books and looked at pictures and maps and saw what the... And this was back, you know, before you could just hit your button on your phone and you get this flyby thing through the thing. Okay, And I'd seen pictures and I knew what was coming and how big it was in miles and where it was in Arizona and how we would get there. And we drive up to the rim of that thing, and I never will forget this, going up to the end and looking over, and I couldn't say a thing. It's just, if I'd have had an iPhone with a panorama, I'd have done 25 of them. It was just like, you got to be kidding me. The reason why I remember that so well is because there was this guy from New York City, he, he let everybody know, right next to him, he said, man, this would be a good place to put all of our garbage No kidding. And I was about this tall, crew cut, chubby, buck teeth. And I, I just wanted to tear the guy apart. It's like, how can you say that? This is unbelievable. In other words, it stilled my heart. It made me appreciate the creator. And I thought that was the highlight of the trip. Till we got to Yosemite. You know, and on the way there were some pretty big redwood trees. Looked at it from the valley. I knew everything about it. Knew where the waterfalls were. And my dad says, see that rock? It's half dome. Yeah, it does look like a half dome. Goes straight down to the floor of the valley. Let's climb it. Yeah. I mean, we're talking junior high school boy. 
Next day we set off, we climbed that thing. We got to the top. Of course, you can't see when you're climbing up the back, the valley. Well, the valley looked a little bit different from the top of Half Dome. The water was good that year. There was a lot of rain. Those, those waterfalls were unbelievably gorgeous. Do you think I wanted to leave? I just, not. he made me lay down. Lay down and look over, you know. I didn't want to leave. Just looking, you couldn't even say anything of how gorgeous it is. I even had a deja vu Friday getting to go to y'all's camp out. I got to, tried to get over there a little bit late, still got fed the greatest burger in the world. Sun was going down, and while we were all watching the kids go crazy and everybody else talking, a couple of people, this one over here and that one over there, stayed in the same two seats the whole two hours I was there. That's how good a time, having the greatest conversation in the world. There was this cliff, and I'm ashamed to say this, but I think it was red, as the, as the sun hit it going down, just stuck out. The campground was called Fortress Cliff. I should have figured that. Oh, that's the name of the place. It was gorgeous. But you know what was best? The foretaste of the assembly of God's people enjoying being together. Kids playing, food on the table, conversations. Some of y'all look like you were in heaven already, unless you anticipated a night with 20 kids in your tent. Even then, it was beautiful. My heart was stirred. I was glad to be able to witness that. You understand what we're saying here? There are foretastes of heaven that God gives us, especially when we're gathered together. It doesn't have to be nature. It doesn't have to be something weird. It's one thing. To know that the glorious creator, God, loves you and cares for you and holds you. But it's another thing to sense it and to experience it. That's the point. That's an experience when you're together of collective worship. And these guys in the transfiguration realized that it, this was not just a miraculous parlor trick to convince the disciples of Jesus' deity. And you will actually read some people's, I think, foolish explanation that that's all it was. This was an experience of that collective worship that they're going to need for what's ahead. They're going to need this for what's ahead. If they needed it for what's ahead, what about us? Now, the question that we're all asking is, yeah, but how how does that happen? How, How do we sense the presence of God? And you can think of all the different things that God provides for us, his word, his spirit, his, this work, this work, the corporate, corporate worship, the body of Christ. You make a list a mile long, that really helps. But there's 
even a simpler way, and it's in the next section of this passage, and it's not what you expect. Because there's an attitude of our hearts that is absolutely necessary before we are even open to experiencing the presence of God. Who is there whether we realize it or not? We understand that, right? But God knows when to give us encouraging little bits through our lives when we absolutely need it. It's not all the time. Obviously. So these guys were up on the mountain, and that's where we get this mountaintop experience phrase from. But they came down pretty quick. And next week we're going to see what the other nine apostles were doing. And they are frustrated beyond anything we can imagine. And a father comes out and demonstrates what it means to experience the presence of God in the reality of a sinful world. And knowing most of us, if you read ahead, you will overthink it. Because this is a matter of our hearts. What it means to experience God's presence, not on a mountaintop, but these guys are going to learn it and see it again right where we are all the time. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you've given us your scriptures which so vividly speak straight to our hearts because you're the author. You made us, you know what we need, and too often we, we just cut our, ourselves off from understanding. We close our eyes, we get obstinate, we don't want to bow before our creator, we argue with you. We're afraid for what you may have for us instead of recognizing that we're in your hands. You have purposes. They are for your glory and our good, and we argue about that constantly. Oh, God, we pray that you'd make us a people that are pliable, that are so in love with you that we trust you. As you demonstrate with children who look up at a parent they love and are willing to jump, are willing to obey, are willing to just be in the be with. We we know we need our hearts constantly worked on in this regard. We pray that you'd work it as we go through these scriptures here as Jesus approaches the cross. So important. And God, we recognize that you prepare us ahead of time too for things that you know are ahead. Good Things that we things we would call good and things that we we know will try us and test us. And Lord, you are completely sufficient. We pray that we would rehearse to ourselves the truth about your greatness, your faithfulness, your love, the forgiveness that we have in Christ, all the things that we need to keep before our face in order to walk faithfully. And God, we realize that you put us in a church for a reason. And we can't do it ourselves. You provide people to, to help sanctify us, both by their strong qualities of faith and by the things that still get on our nerves that we have to learn how to love and give and cooperate 
and we do the same thing, so we're in a very good place. You have put us in, a, in the place of, of love, embracing us, preparing us for eternity with you. Help us see what's going on before us and not always be looking to the next great thing or the next time of relief or whatever it may be. We need your encouragement. We thank you for your word, your spirit. We thank you for Christ. And we thank you for one another. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? I want to read eight verses from a psalm from somebody who you know well. So we went through first and second Samuel. Somebody who was prone to making some pretty bad decisions, but somebody who knew God. And this is written either when David was fleeing from Saul or from Absalom. And I'm going, what difference does it make? It's like his whole life he was fleeing from somebody. But he learned some things. Listen. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Amen. You're dismissed.